This week in episode 53 of Tummel Vision, digital strategist, design researcher, architectural historian, and PhD candidate at Princeton University, Molly Steenson joins me, Deb Schultz, and my co-host, Kevin Marks, to discuss the implication of IBM's Watson winning Jeopardy. What are the hidden links between architecture and interface design? And is shipping code the only measure for creating value, or is there value in thinking big thoughts as well? Welcome to Tummel Vision, episode number 53. That's right, a year and a week. We are on our way to our official second year of episodes. Um, Tummel Vision, for those joining us for the first time, is a weekly salon-style podcast about how to connect and create a world that puts people at the center of business, technology, and culture. Each week, we explore various dimensions of tumbling with the smart folks creating this new world. What is tumbling, you might ask? Tumbling comes from the Yiddish word to tumble, which meant to make noise, a.k.a. from the English word tumult. And tumblers were traditionally hired at weddings to encourage guests to dance, at Jewish bungalow colonies to connect with guests and create a sense of community. So myself, Deb Schultz, Heather Gold and Kevin Marks, my fellow co-hosts, and I all believe that how do you collaborate in a networked age? How do you run things when life is not a bunch of command and control hierarchies? You tumble. So this week, um, the show will be hosted by, by yours truly, Deb Schultz, and I'm sitting up in San Francisco, where we had a whole bunch of hail and rainstorm today, and I'm here and joined with uh, Kevin Marks. Say hi, Kev. Hi there. I'm in uh, San Jose, where we had a bunch of rain too, but um, I just sat inside and watched it and enjoyed it. So, Yeah, it's lovely to have a lot of rain when uh, you don't have to go anywhere. Um, Heather, our third uh, cohort, is off tonight celebrating her birthday. So she could not be with us, but she sends her love. And our guest this week is the lovely girl wonder, Molly Steenson. Hello, hello. Hello. Molly, where you be? I am in exotic Princeton, New Jersey, where actually it got up to 65 uh, degrees today and a lot of the snow melted. That's that's good. So no more gray slushy piles anywhere. Oh no, correct? gray slushy piles, but nice weather. Oh, okay. So we still have the gray slushy piles. Okay. Yeah. That is the problem with East Coast snow. So um, lovely. So um, for those of you who are new to our guest, Molly, I'll sort of just give you a little intro into what Molly is all about. Molly and I have known each other for a long time, and she is a self-defined digital strategist, design researcher, and architectural historian. The beauty of Molly is that she is one of those born tumblers. She connects ideas and people without even realizing she's doing it. And the reason she's over over in Princeton, New Jersey, is because she is a PhD candidate, and she is doing her PhD dissertation on the history of computing and interactivity in architecture and urbanism from the 60s to 80s. And I just think that's just, you might ask, well, what does that have to do with technology and the internet? And Molly is here to tell us about that. But before we go into details, Molly, is there any interesting stuff that happened in the news or any articles that you've read this week that you want to share with us? I know that Kevin and I have read a few. I'm going to let you guys lead because I've spent the week in the past. 
So oh, how um, far back? How far back were you? This was 1968, so a couple of years before I was born. But I'm going to let you guys lead, and then I'm going to jump in and share a little bit of point of view as okay. uh, you talk about some of the things you've been reading this week. Yeah. So, so Kevin, you we sent around some links to each other this week. Um, you, um, I might let you bring up that you had read an article um, called "The Meat Ben Fisher." <laughs> Did you, re- did you, uh, or was that the one that you had sent around? What no, was that, that wasn't mine. There was another piece that you had sent around, right? Uh, the, so the, I, I actually blogged on Tunnel Vision this week. Which, yes, which that's right. Of course, people right. to fall over in shock. But, yes. Um, no, no, no. <laughs> that's not true. Um, but no, the thing I was um, interested in was a, a couple of posts by Paul Downey and Tom Morris. That was um, it. That... Um, where they were talking about the, um, the commitment it takes to actually make meaning in the world um, rather than um, the sort of superficial things that, 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 that people um, want to take part in. Um, and, um, Tom, Tom Morris in particular um, was mostly sort of taking on the sort of gamification of everything meme that, that seems to right. have sort of peaked the, um, where um, if you reduce everything to a simple set of Skinner box um, targets... Um, and he's saying, no, actually, if you want to do something real, you have to make a commitment to it. You have to spend some time on it. You have to spend some time understanding how it relates to the real world and, and what the institutional structures of it are. Um, and, he, and he gave a bunch of um, examples of that. Not, not sure that his examples completely hold water, but he's talking about open source projects. He's talking about Wikipedia. Um, and I'm ready to get back to philosophy. So is it- is his argument about meaning, because I did not get a chance to read these, because as um, those who were in the chat room ahead of time know, I had some oral surgery this week. So not only was I not in the past, I was barely in the present. So <laughs> um, was his point about meaning that you need to sort of dedicate some time to something and he doesn't like sort of the flip lightweightness of people sort of bumblebeeing from idea to idea or? Right. He's, he's, you know, he's yeah. saying that there is a tendency to, 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 the, to trivialize um, and the gamification trend is a, you know, at, at its at its um, at its meme status is like that. It's where okay, we'll just right. add a bunch of checkboxes and rules to this. Um, and he referred back to Paul's post, which was about the I Spy books, which were um, these books that if you grew up in the UK, mm-hmm. they were li- little books where you had to go and look for things in the real world and fill them in when you got them, and you got more points for more obscure things. And it was, it, it was, you know, some of it was you know, railway signals, and some of it was kinds of bird. Um, and the point is, it was, it was designed to make you pay more attention to the world around you and keep track of it. So it was so a can I, so, thing. So, so can I just tell you the, 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 how Americans take really smart ideas like that, the I Spy, which is which is organized around getting kids out and to find unique other things. In America, you usually play the I Spy on road trips in a car. <laughs> Sitting and, and having, the, having the interesting bits basically come at you. So I, I couldn't help but compare the two. I think Molly's well, getting what I'm talking about. Yeah. In, in the UK, you, you were supposed the car to use... train as well. Right. In the UK, you were using the I Spy game to find unique stuff. And in America, we were using it in our cars on our highways to have unique stuff like sort of bump into us when we're driving somewhere. <laughs> so, you know what? The other night, um, Anthony Vidler, who is the dean of Cooper Union um, School of Architecture, gave a lecture here at Princeton. And he was talking about being a young guy and his great interest as a 14-year-old in bird watching. I mean, 
literally bird watching and keeping journals about it, not necessarily girl watching. And what I liked about this is that he distinguished between bird watching and train spotting. And the difference was that if you were a train spotter, you'd stand somewhere dry under a nice warm ledge and you'd wait until a train went by and you'd then take a picture of it or you'd sketch it and you write down the numbers. If you were a bird watcher, you went out there, you tromped around and you got your feet dirty. And I think that that's kind of an interesting, um, Yes. Other point of view about that, you know, someone doing this in the 50s versus today, but same sort of thing. Well, this does seem to get back to the the reason that the, the piece was interesting that you talk about, Kevin, is that we, you know, and in the internet web space that all of us spend a lot of time in, it's not the only thing that we do, but we spend a lot of time in it, there is this sort of what is the rules, what is the frame, how do I make this, how, not, not trivialize, I don't think people mean to trivialize it in the, in the sense of making it small, but you want the formula. And, and frankly, we don't live in a world today where formulas are that easy. I mean, even we, you know, I'll mention the revolution, you know, in the Middle East. Everyone wants to either say, was it people or was it the technology? And the answer is usually and. So I really grok and right. relate to the piece about meaning. So we living in this backlash of people need to have to go back and have a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, uh, not skill, not talent. A a um, a craft. Are we? Are we? Are, do you find us moving back into that concept of craft as a result? Is that what he means by meaning anything fast? Doesn't necessary that we're all be, being too quick around this stuff? It's, it's commitment to to learning a craft is, is definitely what yeah. Tom was talking about. Yeah. He was, you know, he he talks about. Um, about Wikipedia and how you go to Wikipedia and try and add something and you get a sort of magic code and weird social conventions back at you um, because they've built a bunch of social conventions that are designed to, to, to help people edit it into, into the same way that they do it. Now, you know, there, you can critique that to some extent in that there is a problem with Wikipedia being a bit too clicky and um, a bit too focused on you know, a subgroup of people, but... The, you know, the fact is that it does a fairly good job of sieving meaning out of the world in a in a, for a sort of narrow set of you know, factual-based meaning. So this is sort of like the bots versus the humans <laughs> in, in an over-simplistic, right? You know, in a world where we're all connected, which is really at the heart of what we talk about here on Tumble Vision, how much of this is, how much can be process-driven, algorithmic, how much of it can be, um, you know, gotten down into design and pattern languages. Uh, Molly knows I'm throwing stuff in. And how much is organic and emergent and doesn't have a process to it, right? It, it's both and. I mean, one thing right. that we could talk about is this week with our friend Watson on mm. Jeopardy. Yes! We sh- can't believe um, we forgot about that. And I'm, I'm kind of cracking up about this because I'm looking what one of the things I research is the 60s, 50s, 60s, and 70s versions of Watson. They thought Essentially, right. Watson would be there a lot, a lot sooner uh, than today. That there'd be ethical robots that wanted to play games and that would seek things out. A guy named Warren McCulloch in 1952 wrote an article about that. And on the other hand, you know, it's really—I didn't watch the Jeopardy show, I have to say, but it's really kind of blowing people's minds. And now I saw an article about how Watson might change how lawyers do their work or how Watson might change how something really? else does their work. It's like the first real great big AI in action that people have actually seen. 
Well, then, how is it different than, I mean, I agree with you. I was also thinking about this. How is this different than the, didn't we do this with chess a few years ago? Sure we did. We did in 1995 with Big Blue. Right. Um, and, I, you know, to the point that uh, Andrew just said in the chat room, the hardest part about Jeopardy that he's been told is, you know, when you, how do yes. you bust in? That's right. Um, and the what I read about uh, about Watson is Watson could do it in a millisecond if it was certain that it knew the answer, but it couldn't do it quite so fast. Um, if it if it was uncertain, it would hold off. So what was kind of interesting is the way that the uncertainty algorithm got built into the machine, and the ways that that begins to mimic intelligence. So it, yeah, mimic is the right word, right? Well. I, I think it's a little more complicated than that because intelligence, if you, if you look at it, what we, what we perceive as intelligence when we're interacting with something is um, an actively expressed set of things that a machine is doing. It gets what we're thinking. It gets the context. It grows and changes um, in, in tandem with that context, and it keeps expressing it. So it keeps, it keeps acting appropriately, right? And the way that a machine begins to break down is when it doesn't, or when that AI right. begins to break down is when that doesn't happen. And what we know about the way AI is practiced, and please understand I'm an architectural historian, not a computer scientist. That's um, all right. Well, neither, neither of us are, are, well, Kevin's a computer scientist, I guess. He can. He can. <laughs> <laughs> kind of. But the general practice of AI are, while, while the discipline is still structured to a large part in the same way, it does the little things that make computers run better. It does the same kinds of search algorithms that would make something like Google run better. But this was one of the examples of the big ideas, working with people and putting it out there. And I think that's just totally fascinating. Totally. I mean, when you, when you talk about, um, do you have a puppy? No, That's I don't me. have a puppy. Who's got the oh, puppy? Oh, that was your puppy. We never I, hear your I, puppy. I have. Well, He's I got three. I have, I have three. So, <laughs> you hear He's wolves. That's good. We're happy to hear wolves. So, you know, what's fascinating is when you talked about sort of where you're spending your time, and we have a couple of folks in the chat room also, in that sort of 50s, 60s, 70s, and what they, I mean, I'm the daughter of a Sperry Univac engineer, you know. I didn't know that. Oh, uh, yeah, my dad worked on a Sperry Univac. And, um, and and then I envision, and this is what I was that that uh, we're always at this tussle, right? Between even back then, you know, we've been promising forever, like you said, that computers can do all this stuff and take over the world. You know, related to the Watson thing, I in my in my sick bed stage this week, I I do what I usually do when I'm sick and can't do anything, and and turn on a you know sort of some some European PBS UK cinema, and I don't know if any of you have ever seen The Last Enemy. It was like a five-part series that, that, that came out in the U.K. A, a couple of years ago, and it was set in the near future. So ironically, it could probably be set in now. And it was basically about the concept of what happens when the U.K. gets um, national identity cards and we all have one big database. And, and you could be tagged with an RFID chip. So, you know, it's, it's, it sort of made me think that we're living in, the, you know, right now more than ever, more than in the last ten years almost, we're living in this technology versus humanity thing. I mean, there are all these articles written. I mean, another piece that we'll put up on the episode this week is how to how to be meaningful when you're using social media, mm -hmm. right? 
Um, and, and you said like the Watson and the AI, and I feel like we're in this, it, do you think it's because, um, computers are so integrated into our lives, social networks and the internet that people are both loving it and afraid of it again in a new way? Who was it that wrote the, it was Adam Gopnik who wrote the piece a couple weeks ago on the Atlantic, I want to say, or was it the New Yorker? I think it was the New Yorker and I have not read it. I have not read it. She talks, it's the, someone help me here. It was essentially, it's the people who ever afters could have been, could have been ever, never betters ever. Somebody help me. Um, Betters ever. Oh, damn. We'll find it. Keep talking, keep talking, Molly. Keep talking. What he broke down there is the three types of arguments about um, about kind of the ubiquitous influence of social technologies. So one of them is, wow, the world is so awesome with them. The second, I mean, it's dialectical. One is, yeah, this is totally great. The second is, no, this sucks. And the third is, maybe it's somewhere in between. Or, yeah, it's it's always going to be like this because the, the introduction of any new technology to any new time period, particularly a communication technology that speeds up how people communicate and talk, um, mm-hmm. is is always going to be disruptive. So that's the, the set of things. Okay, yeah, the never-betters, the better-nevers, and the ever-wasers. That's it. It's, it's, the ever-wasers is the, is the hard one to remember. <laughs> I know. Yes, exactly. Um, yes. Nut or butter, so, peanut butter, yes. I guess the thing for me is that um, I have a hard time seeing things in absolutes. I started working with social networking stuff in 1992, yeah. um, and I started working with the web professionally in 94, 95, um, and then for Howard Rheingold in 96. So I can't really see these things as brand new anymore. I see them as the latest and most popular incarnation of a lot of things, Um and I exactly. think the, pro- the proliferation of it is a lot more like the introduction of the telephone or um, when you dropped the price of the postal service in the late 19th century and there was a massive telegram and postal boom. Like right. imagine all of a sudden you can communicate with anyone across your country for very little money or for very little money you can send a letter um, and it's going to get there relatively quickly or you might find or, news or- of someone's death. Yeah. Or it would go across town several times a day was the, was the way the post worked in the 19th century, late 19th century, certainly. You could <laughs> have a back-and-forth correspondence within the course of a day. You could right, that's find where, it. That's where you had those cards and the butler would hand you a card and you'd have a response on a silver tray if you had money in the old movies, right? Well, <laughs> you know about my fascination with pneumatic tubes, right? Oh, yes. Yes! Yes, explain to our... our uh, so, the Kevin, to your point, um, the post was really great. I mean, I one of the things I've studied a lot is 19th century Paris because they had the biggest, boomingest right. postal service, and it was just so fascinating. So that's my test case. But um, basically, you know, economies of scale, you drop the price, volume increases, more people send stuff, and then you have extremely crowded streets And how are you going to get something actually across town? And at that, you know, you've got telegraphy and it's cheap, but it takes one person to send it, one person to transcribe it on the other end, and some other people to get it to your house. So it's kind of a last mile problem. And basically in every, yeah, it really is Brazil. Um, In in pretty much every major financial city, um, not just financial capitals, but every major financial city on every continent, 
um, in the late 19th century, they began building pneumatic tube systems to connect the post and telegraph offices to each other. And in a place like Paris, this starts out publicly, it starts out privately in 1866 between the stock exchange oh. and, um, and the central telegraph and post office. And by 1907, it's 210 kilometers of pneumatic tubes. Woof, exactly. And by 1945, 1945, there are 450 kilometers of pneumatic tubes because telephone wasn't reliable and street traffic meant that it was really difficult to get something to the end point. So, I mean... But where did these tubes run from? Were they above ground? Were they... No, they were, they were in, in, European and, uh, in European countries and then it was also in uh, South Africa, I'm sorry, South America and Australia. Um, they ran underground. And typically, infrastructures follow each other. So in Paris, what was interesting is when they put in the new sewers in the 1850s, 1860s, it made it accessible. You could go and you could put infrastructure where other infrastructure went. But that's always what infrastructure kind of does. Like if you know who Anthony Townsend is, he's the guy Mm -hmm. who founded NYC Wireless. He wrote this awesome dissertation about the history of broadband because broadband follows other broadband follows telephone follows you know infrastructure follows infrastructure it's easier to do that and yeah it is totally a benjamin arcades project thing myers you're you're absolutely right um and that's one of the ways i i kind of got into this and what he thinks about how modernity takes place and all of these certain sort of hidden things but yeah the pneumatic tubes i mean they run underground in the u.s um they did as well but they were used instead of for telegrams for first class post and uh, mm-hmm. there was a pneumatic tube line over the brooklyn bridge over the bridge like following the bridge. like yeah. following the the cables like no going in the middle of it in the middle of it yeah till 1953 the truck put pneumatic tubes out of business in the united states there was actually there was a big lobby the the truck lobby lobbied against the pneumatic tubes and uh that's how that was ultimately the death of the tubes um so you're asking is two miles a long run for a pneumatic tube they had repeaters um and they had interim stations and if it was going to be too great a distance between point a and point b they had buildings that just produced air and added additional pressure um or or rarefied air suction into the system that just rocks. So, by the way, for those of you listening to Molly, doesn't it make you want to go back and become an? Doesn't it make you want to be an academic? I'm so jealous. You're just like rolling numbers and dates, and oh yeah, there were pneumatic tubes on the Brooklyn Bridge. You know, I unfortunately know more about pneumatic tubes than most people you're going to meet. I'm not sure how useful it is, but it's been fun. Well, it, it's useful in the sense, I mean, as it relates at least to tunnel vision. I think it's fascinating. It's useful because it reminds us, and especially Kevin and I who sit here in Silicon Valley where people tend to focus on the technology and the shiny object before the implications because the biz- you know that's just the business world here like every new social network is a new thing it's kind of nice and one of the reasons this show is takes a different stance and, is the implications of it so when you were talking about the implications on Paris and culture and you know and society all these new technologies the impact that they have later and and the especially communication mediums so what i wanted to do because i'm i i could talk to you about a million different subjects and you're such a good tumbler that you're jumping right into the chat room um, there's ple- there's a couple of other articles that we'll talk about we'll leave them for the end of the show so that kevin and i can go through them but i would love to 
to talk a little bit about your current work because it's fascinating and you're the first person that we're sort of having on our show that A, is not only friends with all the guests, the hosts, so we know you well, but (laughs) is really making a, one of the first people I know who made a very clear, um, direct line about architects and sort of technologists and, 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 and what your dissertation is about. And I was wondering if you could sort of Sort of tell us what what your dissertation is about, who it's about, and the interesting links you found around that and social software. Sure. Well, my my starting point is that before I went back to school, I was a professor. I kind of did this in reverse. Um, I was a professor at a design school in Italy called the Interaction Design Institute of Rea, and um, and. After being around so many architects, and I mean, I should also mention my undergraduate research was architectural history. So it's not totally, it was a German degree, but I I was working on stuff related to the Bauhaus. Um, It's not totally out there, but I've been really curious. um, I guess the reason I became a historian is because I care about where the ideas get their ideas. So I I don't want to just, yeah, you know, like... Howard Rheingold gets his ideas from somewhere. Where does, where does he where get them from? from? Or, or what, what's the milieu that they come from? Um, how, how do we get the ideas we have? How did the early web happen? Okay. How did hypertext happen? How did, so I started tracing it back and, um, it was actually out of, uh, out of finding Christopher Alexander. Deb, you mentioned pattern languages before. Uh-huh. Exactly. Um, I, you know, I don't really like the guy that much and I found him difficult and I was confused that architects hate him and computer scientists love him and some interaction designers revere him. So, 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 and can you describe who he is in 30 seconds? Christopher Alexander, um, is an architect whose book, A Pattern Language, was really influential for people, for object-oriented programming languages and conventions for interface design. Um, People don't typically think of him as an architect necessarily, um, but that's where he started. And I think he might have been, I can't prove it, but I think he might have been the first architect to use a computer or one of the very first. Yeah. That's interesting, actually. So there is, and he sort of. My understanding is also that he sort of, his concept around pattern language is is putting together, um, literally a language of patterns as to how you create. Um, I, I don't. I'm trying not to use the word interaction. Engagement with buildings and your environment. Is that a good different, way? Different things that, and it's interesting because the way he got there was, you know, 20 years prior, 15 years prior, he was trying to use. Um, set theory and um, and hill climbing mechanisms to kind of parse out requirements for design. So think of what an information architect might do today in terms of the flowcharts and the, the site maps that they create or software flowcharts and things like that. Um, he was that's kind of where he came from originally. He then realized that the computer wasn't the way to get to the deeper meaning that he wanted to get to. Um, And what he thought of instead was that he'd kind of come up with a logic and a grammar for, um, for patterns and that these patterns would describe things that were universal maybe to design or maybe that weren't. Now, of course, this is a really attractive idea to people who design systems. And this right. is a really horrifying idea to people who design 
beautiful things and want to be known for the beautiful things. So that's some of the tension around him. And the tension um, is the tension itself is fascinating because again, it, it sort of relates to what we started the show off on. Is you know, it, it, it's this it's this desire sort of that we have as humans to most humans, not tumblers, to pick A or B or binary. Like the the Watson is the is the his, is the future versus the human. Right. You know, instead of learning from each other. And so the fact that he um, threatened the, the, the artiste architects, right? Yeah, very um, nice. um, And yet excited the more sort of, um, I guess, I'm going to use my terms wrong, but the sort of pro- more process, form, and function-driven architects is fascinating. Because... But- but, but was this because he was a, a throwback to the sort of old model of pattern books like Palladio and so on that would say, here are the classical patterns that you, that you should be using? Was, you know, that, was that an interesting, that's a great question. And this is one that now you're reminding me I actually have to answer in my own research. Because, <laughs> no, I mean, there, seriously, there's this idea of, of Beaux-Arts art education, you know, the traditional model in France where you copy the old masters and you know them well enough and you reproduce the style and then you bring the work in front of juries and you, you test it out. And if you know the styles well enough, then you will know the proper ways to put them together. That's not what he's talking about because he wanted Mm. it to be kind of an every person possibility. And at that he's saying, um, it's a pattern language, not the pattern language, but he's kind of sticky about it and kind of protective about it. And I don't know, he's, he's kind of problematic and he's not the only person operating at this time. I want to, um, I want to lean away from him and talk about some of the other architects who I think were really important to things we do today. The names of whom are, are known to a lot of us. So someone else Someone else I'm working on is uh, Nicholas Negroponte. Who I who, did not know was an architect. He is an architect. And I, that's fascinating to me. And the MIT Media Lab resides in the School of Architecture at MIT that, and always has. And now that makes a lot more sense to me. It was, it was I the Architecture Machine Project, wasn't it, originally? Exactly, exactly. So that's what, he, between 1968 and 1980, he worked on something called the Architecture Machine, uh, the Architecture Machine Group. And um, there's, this, there's this great quote where he says, let's see if I can find it, because I scribbled it down today, that over, um, <coughs> excuse me, over a period of time, the Architecture Machine was a book, a mini computer, a family of mini computers, a small curriculum, a computer ethic, Another ah. book, a catch-all, and a catch-all for a variety of papers. So, um, kind of, uh, kind of amusing That's... because what wasn't it? A lab. Yes, he is. Uh, <laughs> he also Myers, I have certain ideas about that. That uh, about where it gets to and what the big project is. But um, but what's what's interesting about him? I mean. First of all, he's the son of a very, 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 very wealthy family. Grew up in Switzerland, uh, went to Choate in the United States, went to MIT, um, studied studied architecture. Uh, and then around his last year of uh, high school, or I'm sorry, of uh, college, he started working with a man named Stephen Coons, who's kind of known as the father of computer-aided design. He was a mechanical engineering professor. Um, and Stephen Coons was responsible for Sketchpad, if someone wants to find, well, I should, mm. let me be careful, 
Ivan Sutherland is responsible for Sketchpad, um, which he did with um, Claude Shannon as his as his advisor. But the broader Sketchpad project at MIT, which is the first computer aided design system that used vectors and could design first in two D and then three D, was happening at MIT. Um, at that time, uh, if you Google YouTube, you can find demos of it, and it's just mm-hmm. it's just hilarious. It's such a trip. But that was and what that became it. AutoCAD as well, right? Um, I don't right? think no? that it's a order. direct line, but you might know more about that. Mm. I may have that. I may have that backwards actually. So, okay. so here is this guy who's this architect from a wealthy family. And then yeah. what, what year did he graduate college around? He, he, finishes his, he finishes college in 65. He finishes his master's in 66. And five days later is back taking over Stephen Kuhn's classes, teaching introduction to uh, computing for mechanical engineering. So this happens right off, right off the bat. And then two years later, he starts the Architecture Machine Group in 1968 at MIT. Um, a couple of years after that, he publishes the book, The Architecture Machine, which he uh, he says he hates, but I think is just so deeply fascinating and totally totally amusing and a, a nice, I guess, document for its time. Well, uh, yeah, he probably hates it like every artist hates their first version of, or every author, that feeling like his his ideas have, have evolved so much more since then or whatever. And he's 25 and, you know. Right, but. Yeah. But what I like about the book, and um, I actually have a scanned-in copy out there online somewhere. I'll see if I can post the link uh, so you, cool. can, you can look at it. It's not in print anymore, obviously. Was that he was, you know, some of the things that we were talking about before with Watson or with what is what kinds of interactions should we be having with our environments, he was asking then. And so that's what's interesting mm-hmm. to me. And he was yeah. trying to transfer it to the built world, you know, how does this work for a design process or a city or a building? And what if we all live inside of architecture machines and that's everything? And I think that's honestly where he was trying to go with the idea. So you have the yeah. media lab. Yeah. So like, yeah, I could. Yeah. And no, what I'm thinking, it's just, it's really fascinating that you've got, you know, uh, Alexander, you've got Negroponte, you have, as you've also mentioned to me in our conversation, Richard Saul Warman, the original founder of TED, who is an, also an architect. And as someone who studied undergrad and graduate, the architecture thing, is it something about, you know, you, uh, architects trying to communicate through three-dimensional physical space and now are the are those three guys who were architects and one of the first to discover the 2d interface so who who are their grandchildren in a sense like architects today are they working in 2d spaces in the set you know do they think of themselves as technologists or connect those dots in the way those guys did were they very unusual they were um, architecture today. It's a pretty conservative discipline, um, and it's largely not very interested yeah, yeah. in these bigger issues. I think that eventually, the idea of a of an evolutionary system that helps you design is not the direction that architecture goes. They go the direction of help me make something look better and look prettier. And so yeah. you get to you get to like parametric design today, but. What I think happened with Negroponte is that these dialogues that he was in or that Alexander was in, and let it be said, they are not friends. They were in the same milieu, but mm-hmm. they're not buddies. Oh, really? Interesting. Okay. Oh, yeah. Um, I think that what they were doing kind of jumped the ship or jumped the shark or jumped over and became mm-hmm. 
our models for interactivity. And I think that was built into um, mm-hmm. the way that some of these things were perpetrated, I think, and propagated. I think that's part of the building into the media lab commercial funding versus defense funding. And that's a really nerdy thing that I could go on about, but, um, <laughs> but it's, I think these things jump over and become our models today of interactivity and our models of social networks. And they're a lot more relevant when we're talking at the scale of the world that we live in versus just what happens on a screen with how we draw and represent things. If well, that makes sense. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Cause if they were, if they were individuals that only thought To me, the fact that architects or the architects of their age and and time period, you know, thought of what they were doing in this very big picture way and, you know, the sort of 100,000 foot view of what am I building when I'm building a building, that kind of thing. I'm connecting people and dots and creating an environment. Um, The fact that that leapfrogged into a set of ways for interaction designers to think about sociality is is really interesting, Um, for better or worse. Like, I always joke that, that, you know, what we try to talk about here on television is how do we create better interaction? Like, Mm -hmm. our models are very not sophisticated today in the world of social software, right? Maybe they should stay unsophisticated. I mean, I think that... I think there's a real danger. Part of the thing that's turned me off of Silicon Valley and made me, frankly, pretty glad that I haven't been central, centrally in it for the last, you know, six years is because everything is the brand new thing and nothing has any institutional memory. Exactly. Uh, and people solve, people keep, people don't define, or companies tend not to define the problems better. They just add new spiff to the process. Um and it leaves me pretty cold because I'd rather see things greatly change the way problems work. I guess in this sense, I, I can't remember. Was that the never wasers? That <laughs> I-, uh, I don't remember from the article either. I glanced at it. But your point is exactly what I, I was trying to hint bad at. Frames. Right. Um, I'm trying, well, trying to hint at at the beginning, right, that, that we – when I say sophisticated um, – uh, I mean, more in tuned with the way people actually interact. Well, it's not part the way, of the thing that, that, that architects inherently have to think longer term because, A, they're building buildings that are, that are clearly supposed to last, but also their project lifetime cycle is of the order of 10 to 15 years in general. It depends uh, because you presume that architects are building buildings and they're not. They're designing drawings um, right, right. They, they, with the intention that it may be built. But the people that um, yes. that kind of gave rise to our modes of interactivity weren't necessarily interested in building buildings. And the buildings that they did build weren't that great. So, the, so these were impatient architects was who, who sort of left the field and tried to build tools for tools rather because they couldn't actually get any commissions. No, I don't think that was it either. I don't think that that was their their focus. I think okay. that they wanted to focus on what would happen. Um, there's, for instance, the design methods movement, um, which has some of these things have a big impact on what we now call user-centered design, for instance. Yes. Or, mm-hmm. um, and so, you know, there there's some history to where these came out of out of the industrial design tradition in the UK in the 50s and and how that kind of transferred to other places and the way you define problems to be solved. You know, I remember my buddy Peter Merholtz um, having the the kind of tag name for himself, Peter Me Problems Solved. And that problem-solving idea comes from the 1960s, that if you could define a problem systematically well enough that it could be solved, 
um, by a machine or that a machine could interact with that solving, you'd come up with better solutions overall for people and machines. That was kind of where Alexander was at in his early career. So I don't think it was bad architects, although some people might argue with that. I think it was no, just a different piece of the pie. Yeah, I think I think they probably just went off in a in a different direction. I think, you know, I would, say, we, I would say they were impatient architects who were impatient. I, I think that's they didn't have the patience true. to wait to, to to go through the apprenticeship and 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 you know get something actually built. I don't agree with you on that. Okay, okay, no, I'm, I'm, I'm I don't think I don't think that it, it bears out um, in the research that I'm okay. done and uh, that I've done, but. Um, Okay. But yeah, it's. I don't think that it's that they're impatient architects. In fact, um, you know, using a computer in the 1960s was a process that required a great amount of patience. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's very right. true. And, and lots of punch cards. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you so may not know. So, what I was getting at was was the longer term thinking aspect of it. Yes, um, that that that's and, interesting. Uh, going back to the sort of the Watson thing, there is there is the issue of. You can get a certain amount done fairly easily and superficially. It is something that sort of vaguely looks intelligent and human. Um, and that was like the sort of big explosion in the 60s where we had, you know, Eliza and all these sort of basically trivial pattern matching type supposed AIs. Um, but to actually get much further than that is, is really, really hard. Exactly. And that's why the whole thing stagnated for a long time. Um, so. Yeah, it is still largely stagnant and AI. I mean, there, there's GoFi, G-O-F-A-I, good old-fashioned AI, and those are the big sexy <laughs> definitions. And, uh, and then there's what happened, you know? It's hill climbing mechanisms and algorithms, and it's things that make your search engine run better, um, not using up very much processing power um, and doing simple things pretty simply. But... The bigger questions are still there, and I think the fact that the whole the whole country seemed to fire up in the last couple of days with Watson on Jeopardy yeah. is just another version of these questions that we've got. Right. I mean, it's this constant, you know, man, machine, making it better, love it. Is tech, you know, as Tony says, tech is evil. Tech isn't evil. It's a tool. You know, what What to me is sort of um, my impetus for, for getting you on the show other than, than your sheer brilliance on all subject social software was that linkage between the architecture and software and the fact that, you know, you just said that, you know the valley tends to sh- tends to focus on the shiny object and doesn't necessarily come at technology in sort of the popular commercial way in terms of a rigorous solve a bigger problem or or as as we've talked about here on Tumblevision startups are founded by by geeks and coders and are the future founders going to be a little bit more social humanities oriented well, you know, one of the things that I kind of wonder, and I have not, I haven't thought about this in my own research quite like this, but I wonder what the parallel is for how someone like Nicholas Negroponte went about getting his sets of funding, which I'll mention in a second, and how uh, VC firms are working today. If you, you know, if you were to do a history or a study of everything they fund mm-hmm. and what the interests are that they would have had. When Negroponte started his career, he was very good friends with J.C.R. Licklider, who was mm-hmm. uh, the director of information processing at ARPA, um, and Marvin Minsky, um, who was the head of the AI lab, the AI group at MIT, still is very good friends with him, Uh, and a guy named Marvin Denikoff, who nobody really knows about, who was the director um, 
the director of something, I forget exactly what, at the Office of Naval, Pro- uh, Naval Research. And uh-huh. these guys funded him personally, not just kind of randomly, not like a National Science Foundation grant where you compete against other people, but they funded him. And they said, we like you, guy. We think you're smart. And so they funded Lucky. him. Lucky dude. Well, yeah. And why do you, you know, okay, here's a very wealthy young man who was very intelligent, but pursued some, some pretty big relationships with these guys. And eventually after you get to about 1980 and those relationships are petering out, excuse me, wait, they're not petering out They're They can't sustain the level of growth that he and MIT have in mind for the architecture machine group. So he and uh-huh. Jerome Wiesner, the head of the of uh, MIT, the president of um, the university, go out and seek commercial funding from 40. They managed to cement it from, I think, 30 or 40 corporations saying, you can't do the level of R&D. We've got, you know, if you give us $150,000 or $200,000, you'll be able to, um, you'll be able to, hire our people and we will give you pre-competitive research like you would never be able to do on your own. And that's still effectively the model at MIT. Yeah. At the Media Lab. Mm. At the Media Lab, yeah. Yeah, I want to say The culture of the demo, yes. Exactly. Well, culture of the demo, but also culture of of the the lab still and culture of, of getting things done and culture of GM. So, okay, so you take that and then wouldn't it be interesting if you actually studied everything that a VC firm did, um, everything that they funded, everything that crashed. And then you started mapping out what those commonalities were and what those agendas were and what those social networks were and what, what those networks of power were. And you started making that explicit. You might begin to see some interesting things. Well, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that since I'm in the midst of, of getting funding for a lab that I, that might be, might connect those two dots. So we'll have to talk more, but I'm not going to bore our television crowd. Kevin knows a lot about it, but I've, I've defined it as if, if Negroponte was going to build a lab today, how would he do it? And more, less about media than about companies today and new ideas need to get into a room together earlier in the process. And is there a way to do that so that it, it still can be neutral territory, somewhere between what the VCs and incubators do and the big companies do and, and academics do. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting – we can have a whole show on it. But, um, you know, to me the interesting part is, um, is, is, you know, in the few minutes that we have left, I'd love to hear, you know, you've done a lot of work also. You know, that's sort of your architecture piece and the um, – the, the PhD piece, but you've also done a lot of work on in the social software space and in how people are using mobile devices and connecting with each other in places like China and India versus maybe how we're doing it in America. Do you, do you um, have any thoughts about anything you want to share that was like this big aha moment that you had about how these new technologies are enabling new types of communication and connection? In, uh, in sure, sure. A couple a couple of years ago, in 2006, I spent the summer with Microsoft Research India in Bangalore, and I conducted this study on how people share mobile phones in urban settings. And I had this idea going in. This was this was my first trip to India, um, so you know, I, 
everybody has their own assumptions. My assumption here was that the point at which someone would buy a mobile phone would correspond with the point at which kind of financially they'd be entering the middle class, just at the very bottom of it. And hmm. that maybe if they were sharing a mobile phone, then that would be the moment before they were entering the middle class, which was completely wrong, completely, completely false. <laughs> very, a very American sort of view going in on well, it, right? There, there were reasons, and in fact, I was working with Jonathan Donner at um, at uh, um, at Microsoft Research, and you know, we didn't think this was far fetched, but it turned out that. Everybody shared mobile phones. It just depended on the circumstance and that wealthy people would use mobile phones and share them and mm-hmm. that women who were middle or upper middle class would not carry mobile phones because it would be seen to be um, a gauche. It would be, um, mm. it would be, it wouldn't be chased. It wouldn't be proper, um, but they would share their husband's mobile phone and use it all the time or use the driver's mobile phone. Um, there were people who refused to use mobile phones anymore mm. who lived in slums. So they'd already, they were already over it. Um, and it's one of these things, you know, there's been a lot of stuff lately about sharing and sharing technologies and that kind of thing. And, yeah. um, Startups like my friend Mickey Krimmel with Neighbor Goods. And I started yeah. to think that maybe sharing and how you use technologies on that level might be a more interesting set of questions, including common things that, you know, we tend to think of a mobile phone as an extremely personal device, but in other contexts, maybe it is not. And um, even in my study, it didn't, it didn't matter if the phone was expensive or not. Um, it would still get shared um, in all sorts of circumstances. So kind of... Well, you remind me of, of when the Walkman first came out and people would have, you know, this, you know, there was much more sharing of technology where you take your head, you know, one headset off on one ear and one on the other person. You'd share listening to music together. We yeah, sort of don't have two, that as much. Do you or, or, and then and then they went to the two jacks. That's right. And it was the best ski trip ever. Like you've got a long right. bus trip, your best friend or a cute boy or a cute uh-huh. girl, and you've got like yeah, this is this is the awesomest. So, and yeah, there's a whole. Andrew just posted that there's a whole web egg. Yeah. So it's it ends up being I think a lot more a lot more common a thing, but. I think that it's interesting to break things down and atomize them a little bit. Um, you know, we were talking about the Don Norman piece that was in Core 77 where yes. he, he apparently just got the memo that, like, he all of a sudden <laughs> maybe these closed gardens aren't so groovy. Like, when did Jonathan Citrine write his book? Oh, well, I don't know, a couple of years ago. But obviously he had just had a personal look. See, when I read Don's article, epiphany, we'll put it in the yeah. chat room, he had an epiphany because he was on a trip somewhere and he personally had an experience where he couldn't get online and then realized, oh, my God, if you can't get online today, you can't get shit done. And his and, and half your brain is missing, yeah. And, and half of your brain is gone. And so to me, going back to the it's all personal part of our show, the book might have been written a while ago, but till an individual lives through the issue, even someone as genius around technology and interface as Don Norman, you're not going to write about it till you live it, right? It's so true. It's true. Yeah. It's so but true. it's also, I find it a lot easier to get shit done when I don't have my phone working and when I, when I turn <laughs> off the technology. I agree with you. I call them input days and output days. Yes, I. This mm-hmm. internet thing can be highly distracting. I don't know how you PhD people do it today. It's so easy to get distracted. 
tell me about it. We, you know, one of the things, one of the kindest things they do is throw boot camps where they, you know, for a week, you, you give them $50 on Monday and you make the agreement to show up every day. You get the $50 back at the end of it. You show up for the mornings. They give you all the coffee and snacks that you need. You get a tremendous amount done if you go to a boot camp. Wait, what are these boot camps? They're dissertation boot camps or writing They're boot dissertation camps. Bo- so basically you're paying someone for forced... No, no, um, you, you get the money back if you go. No, to no, no, no. But the point is, the point is, you are you are outsourcing focus. Yeah, okay, that's not the right know, way to say it. You're, you that's could, not the right way to say it. You can but, also do a boot camp in Santa Monica or Dolores Park for fitness, which I think sounds like the last thing in the world that I want to do. But it's a really, really effective way for people to get a jump on getting in shape and feel like they've got community and yes. colleagues. Yeah, it's, it's, it's peer group finding, isn't it? No, I, lo- I love yes, it. Yes, very way, much. But I'm finding it fascinating. It's one of the most important things that for as separate as you can be, you still need colleagues. I mean, it's the blow up of right. co-working. It's um, mm-hmm. I'm hoping that libraries are going to make a comeback because for as much as I like places like the summit in San Francisco, or, um, I haven't tried co-working in, uh, in New York, the it's too noisy. And so ultimately you kind of need to find a library and I'm, I'm hoping that libraries will, will kind of boom again as, as, uh, more contemplative places. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, the good old third place, right? Mm-hmm. That, but the quiet third place. I'm sort of yeah. uh, there. I said it. I, a show doesn't go by t- unless I say the third place, and unless Kevin says the word "fatic." So you know, um, <laughs> <laughs> and then everyone has to drink. So um, I, yeah, I, Andrew said in the chat room. I agree with you as the daughter of a librarian. We, libraries are incredibly useful right now. And the fact that, that there's a whole generation of people who are just meeting at coffee shops, and, and those places are great in co-working, depending on the co-working space, is great because you do get to speak and talk and share ideas with someone. But when you want to work quietly... You need to join something kind of, I mean, in Los Angeles, um, I belong to a writer's co-op called the Writer's Junction. Um, and it's a membership thing. It's not drop-in, yep. um, but... At least there's a contemplative place that I can go and still get uh, get some quiet and get some work done. Yeah, and there's this and 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 there's this sort of weird thing that I don't necessarily want to put on headphones and listen to some music. It took me a very long time to find music I could work to. Yeah, you know, and I think that concept comes from people who are sitting and literally surfing or coding or a different type of thought process going on that you can listen to music while you do some of that stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's a very different way of being very, very, very different. Um, did I interrupt you before Kevin? Um, I thought I cut you off a second ago. <laughs> I'm so used to it now. I didn't even notice. Um, Da-dum-dum. <coughs> Da-dum. I, 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 had a, I, I, I had a thread from earlier, which I've, which I need to draw back on into um, well, you'll get you'll get it back. We can we can actually <coughs> think of stuff to ask Molly in our in the time we have left. I was I'm, I was interested in the in the the mobile phone sharing thing um, because of are you know are these devices actually designed to be shared usefully um, as as you know as as we build them with the assumption that one person is using them all the time they get more and more of yourself embedded in them 
um, and more and more of, you know, if I hand you, hand you my phone, um, when you search it, you'll, you'll find a bunch of stuff that, you know, you say, I want to look something up. Well, you'll be looking up in, in my context rather than in your context. Right, it's uh, like your own identity card in a way. And, and you, know, my, my, you know, my computer is used to the idea of having multiple users and you can switch into another user and say, here, go and play with that. Um, and certainly you know, the way we use computers in the, in the home here is that the, the, the boys will pick a, pick a random computer and log into their web stuff and use that and they, don't, you know, they won't bother changing users half the time, which can get no, very confusing. exactly, because what you're talking about presumes... Um, it, it, it's, it's a level of identity question. So your identity might be collective. You could be very happy sharing a mobile phone between a group of teenagers because if one person answers the text message... Um, particularly like say a group of five boys hanging out somewhere. If one person answers the text message from the other, it's probably all the same. It probably doesn't work with teenage girls, but you know, the, the level, the level of the atom, so to speak, I mean, it's, it's more molecular. A family could feel comfortable using, carrying one mobile phone when they go out. And that might be the mother's mobile phone or the father's mobile phone. And one of the women who I was, um, who was also a researcher at, um, MSR when I was there, we kind of joked, well, what, you don't bring your mobile phone to dinner. And she said, no, my mother does. And if you were meant to meet, reach me at dinner, you'd have the number, you know? So, <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's a technology. Um, it, it, the technology is kind of irrelevant. It's communication technology and taps into a bunch of other things. It taps into personal networks and personal rules, which is what I thought was so interesting about it. It didn't need to be a sexy phone. And indeed, when I was doing the study, it was 2006. And so their, you know, smartphones were greatly limited at that point. And the hottest phone in India at that time was the Razor. So, you know, there, there you go. It's, it was still a text-based model where now I think you'd see a lot more iPhones as the status phone or Androids or Blackberries or whatever. I haven't been back. I haven't repeated the study, so I can't say. But it, but it is really interesting that, that that concept of sharing our technology, our interfaces, I think that's sort of, I think we lose something when we're each going to have our own. Um, a, a physical device, maybe. Maybe we don't. I don't know if we're doing as good a job yet. It's in its infancy designing interfaces that encourage sharing to the level that to, to the level of all the kind of thing that happens when you're sharing the physical device it depends on whether you're dealing with device or world there's a lot of um mm. God, who is the guy there was someone who showed this great slide in um, a panel at South by Southwest that showed every kind of scale of screen from, you know, the yeah. one watcher in your pocket all the way out to kind of an urban scale screen. And it, it helped bring into focus the way that you'd need to design. And that that's for a visually, you know, a visual interface. There are lots of other interfaces that might not express information visually. Um, you know, you could be doing noise, you could be doing smell. Um, there was a student here at Princeton who just did a smell interface with a mobile phone. It was really funny. Really? Um, <laughs> you, could be doing, you could be doing touch, you could be doing material shifts. I mean, there are a lot more, more things going on. I think that if you just think of screens and uh, touching and interacting, it's a pretty limited world. Yeah, you're right. You're right. We do tend to focus on the, um, yeah, that other, that, that other piece. Um, 
I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm trying to catch up in the chat room and look at my notes here at the same time to make sure we're covering everything. Mm-hmm. And it's and, and now I'm realizing why it is really handy for us to have three people. Um, <laughs> so we could, you know, we can each multitask a little bit better. So well, actually, I remember the thread I wanted to pick up a little. Oh, which good. Was, um, Molly um, saying she was glad she was out of Silicon Valley because it's 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 so ephemeral and shallow, um, and I think. That's, there's, some, there's definitely some truth in that, but I was always also, um, I'm also fascinated by the valley because it because it has this sort of persistent, decades-long culture of of building new things um, and innovation, and having the sort of social support structure for that. And it, it's always uh, one of one of the things I've, I've been spending a bit of time with is trying to bridge stuff back and forth between the UK and the US. And it's always fascinating to watch the the UK people come over here. Um, and go, wow, you mean building a startup here is actually, you know, this easy? Is, is this possible? And, 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 you know, and feel that, in, that immersion in, in the fact that, that there is a presumption of um, iteration and failing and trying again and then building a new thing um, here, which is, which is sort of the opposite of what, what's expected in, the, in, in, in London, I, I suppose. Or old world versus new world. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's I could answer that in a lot of different ways, Kevin, because I also look at the history of the Cambridge to Cambridge interaction, like Cambridge mm-hmm. UK and right. Cambridge Mass um, and tech communities and the way those things transfer. Um, I think there is a really interesting design and technology culture in London, particularly that came up through the Royal College of London. Um, yes. Gillian Crampton Smith's computer-related design program that became interaction design that became something kind of altogether different again with designing interactions. Um, so, you know, what what gets called interaction design or design for technology in the UK comes from a different context and has different outputs than, than we have here. Um, we tend to be kind of monocultural. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah. No, I, I, mean, I, I go ahead. Through, I can, I can recognize the, the thing is the thing I found. Well, the, I had a bunch of great colleagues who came through the RCA in London, and and you definitely recognized that. But the other thing is that you know where you end up in London is there are sort of several black holes you get drawn into. You either end up you know being drawn into the city and and, and finance and working with with that giant money pit, or you get drawn into. Um, the, the the BBC, which is another sort of you know polar opposite in many respects, but is also has this sort of you know archaic structure of how things are done. Yeah. Um, and then the third piece in London is because it is the the media capital as well. There's there's this sort of huge advertising and promotion thing. So many of the people that we're working in design and technology get stuck building you know crappy little um, ad sites and don't get the the ability to to sit down and, and construct something a bit a bit bigger. And that but was that was definitely we, part of the, the frustration of of London being the capital for everything, yeah. as opposed to the US, where we have these distributed centres. So you can have, you know, New York as the um, as the media capital, and um, Cambridge as as an as an academic capital, and and the Valley as a technology capital. But why are those the only capitals that can exist, or the only centres? I mean, well, clearly not. The, no, no. You know, if you if I want to know, for instance, why um, why 
when you look at social, the world of social networking technology, that it only seems to connect to Hollywood, for instance, through advertising agencies. I wonder why high-end production companies aren't working closely with social networking technologies to come up with something that has the amazing high fidelity of effects from, you know, the hottest movie you've ever seen or the sexiest commercial that's on right now. And all of the kind of right there connectedness of social networking technology. And the fact is that those two communities don't even have any common language. Um, it's one thing that gives me a little bit of hope about the New York thing. But then, like, why aren't we talking about Montreal and the awesome communities there that make things happen? And why aren't we talking about, um, well, we could talk about the fact that Arduino um, was a joint effort between Europe and the United States and South America and was named after the bar we used to go to for happy hour. Um, <laughs> it was, well, Ar- but, Arduino, but... but- that's so cool. The, the, what you're raising, though, is the exact point of the show. So I have tumbling. So right. he, different industries, different communities, sometimes you're lucky enough to be in a, a, in a community where there's cross-pollination. But up until this day and age, I would argue, this is oversimplification for an academic like yourself, you know, you had specialization was it, whether it's company, industry, or whatever. And now the true innovation happens at cross-pollination. When the Hollywood folks talk to the the geeks, etc. I mean, my personal life experience has been that I have literally been at conferences on the same day where I'm at the business room and I have to find completely different language. You know, why is it that the, you know, sort of O'Reilly conferences can happen on the same day as the Internet Advertising Bureau's conferences? And they're not talking to each other. And these are hypothetical situations. But, at you know, Web 2, people are talking about or e-tech, they're talking about how do we monetize and what's the future and how do we make money? And then the big advertising agency ones are like, well, the only business models are, you know, the the only way for interesting innovation and and meaning to go back to the beginning of the show or sort of rigor to happen is, I think, I I believe strongly through cross-pollination. But I think, you know, I think what happens tends to happen in, you know, an industry where, um, at least the tech space, the internet web space that Kevin and I live a lot in is it's way too easy for people to just keep iterating. And I, I'm with you that I, I'm sort of at this point kind of down on San Francisco tech scene because that is all I see is iteration without deeper meaning, you know. I think and- one of the worst things to happen to social networks is the term social network. Oh, I so agree with you being co-opted for the use of meaning technologies that we use usually in a web-based, app-based, or mobile sense to communicate with each other um, and to communicate with a broader group of people. What a social network is, by definition, is exchanges um, between actors in a network, or that's one definition, and that that belies Mm -hmm. a certain theory. But, I mean, by definition, an an economic system is a social network. A nation-state is a social network. The military-industrial-academic complex is a social network. And I think that if you start designing with that in mind as the the core thing, and this was something that I was interested in when I was a design professor, it was something that I was interested in Netscape, at Netscape in 1996 and 1998, that if you actually figure out who and what you are designing for, um, then you find out what those methods of exchange are and you make them valuable. And it's not necessarily so much a matter of 
um, monetization and turnover. Um, but then again, I think I fell victim to too many dot com layoffs. Me too. Well, yeah. Well, same here. But <laughs> but I do think that that what you're talking about also is uh, you brought another thing to mind. We we do sort of that term social net. We we sort of have have reached this sort of homo- homogenization of the social network, like Facebook or the, I happen to hate the term also because very often, aside from the fact that the definition of social network is wrong as people are interchanging social network with social media with, uh, no one knows what they're talking about anymore. Uh, um, But I think there's something there about uh, this sort of mollification of social networking, right? We're going to have one place. It's very hard to create usefulness in what you're talking about, if you're trying to be the one thing for everybody, isn't it? I, I, want, I want to mollify social network where, where, where Molly does it, yes. That, that would yes, be you want to mollify it. <laughs> Mollification. Uh, I'm working on no, it. I'm working not on it. Mollification, mollification. <laughs> I mean, you know, honestly, the reason, the reason that I went back to school had to do with wanting to seek out answers in, in different ways. And, um, I, I decided to go back to school when I was 33 years old, um, so, it, you know, I already had had a pretty big, I was leaving something, I was leaving a lot behind to do it and taking a pretty big um, hit in a lot of ways. Um, but the the great thing was, is it gave me different frameworks and it gave me a chance to, to deepen into things and get rigorous about certain things. I'm not saying that other things are unrigorous. I want to be really clear about this. And I'm I'm not saying that I believe that everybody should or can go back to school, um, you know, the, the financial thing is a pretty monstrous, uh, monstrous hit, but it, it has been an interesting, um, an interesting set of decisions. And I guess the other thing that I find myself, um, well, I'm glad that it's kind of falling out of fashion, um, which is the whole, maker discourse. It only matters if you're shipping, shipping, and it only matters if you are a maker. Um, that makes me seethe because that, that means that if you, um, if you write, you're not a maker. If you are contemplative, you are not a maker. If you're not putting another piece of whatever out into the world, you are not productive. And, um, you know, I am one of the speediest people you'll ever meet, but, but it's really important to, to be critical. And I, I question the lack of the critical in, uh, in a lot of this. Um, I'd like there to be an everyday critique going on in the kind of digital communities because I don't really see it. Um, I mean, not everybody's got to go back to school, but it would be nice if there were if there were a deeper discourse sometime about what's good and bad and what's valuable. Yeah. And, and and a a real world example was that was when I arrived in Silicon Valley six years ago, I was shocked that the, at a startup or a place that codes a lot, the term meeting is a negative word. Hmm. When people get, if you're not sitting at your computer writing code, you're wasting time. There's, there's sort of no, understanding that bringing the, maybe the whole ecosystem together in a room to discuss 
you know, what we're building um, might be a good idea or why or all that. But it, it was really fascinating to me. Now, the other extreme is that, you know, meetings and not shipping is also bad. But, uh, but there is something to be said for thinking things through and taking a step back. Yeah. But in a world where, um, you know, iterate, iterate, ship it and then fix it is the nature of the beast... I think that's great in a lot of ways, but I do think we're losing a little bit of something along the way. I agree with you. Yeah, it's spooky. I think I think the resistance is to, is to the sort of formalization of, of meetings, of, of yeah. and then it becomes you know captured by by the sort of the, the people who are good at that process. Um, and that you know there was an, just there's an HBR post this week about saying hold conversations, not meetings, which I thought was um, fits the the, the, the Tom and World view which is that the, the point is it's very, very easy to, to sort of construct the forms of a, of a meeting, um, but actually no one is, is being consulted and what's being read out is, you know, pre-prepared um, statements that are... Yeah, absolutely. When I lived in ...designed Italy, to make the speaker look good. And that, I think that's the resistance to meetings that, that, you, get, that, that you get in the valley. And the, and the question is how you scale the we can all talk to each other at any time culture from, you know... 30 people to 1,000 people, that's the bit that's hard. Um, and that's, and that's, that's, you know, that's the, the, the piece that all the different companies grapple with. Yes, agreed. Yeah, I, I, I know, I just was... But, there, but it, it goes along with what Molly's saying, that, that, you know, doing, building, making is the highest value, right? Um, you know... Uh, Anyone who is not the person who came up with the idea or coded the thing is superfluous. And I think there needs to be a kind of a, um, I'm a strong believer in the ecosystem around any product or service that you need more than one type of skill set. That's it. Right. Yeah. You know, um, it is getting late. And Molly, it is, since you are in Princeton, it is getting late for you. Although I know that you PhD types stay up all night and drink hard liquor and come up with big ideas and stuff like that, right? If I do that, I don't come up with very big ideas. <laughs> <laughs> well, you come up with interesting ones. They just not, might not be as interesting that's, that's, in the morning. That's what symposium means, isn't it? <laughs> Getting inspired through drink. That's exactly. I just wanted to uh, let our chat room know. I know there's been a lot of talking back and forth. I haven't been able to jump in as much because I'm trying to keep conversation flowing. But did anyone have, knowing sort of Molly's background, if anyone in the chat room had some, some questions for Molly, we'll take them. And, oh, it's past Rasuzu's bedtime. That's right, Rasuzu, we... <laughs> we pushed our show to a later hour. Now you're in big trouble. Night, Rasuza. is our teenager. How she found us, we'll never know. George is in the chat room. When did you show up, Yay, George? Yay, George. Perhaps what? the maker researches is a response yeah. to... <laughs> yes. Virtuosity. Yeah, virtuosity. Yes, that's, right. very, that's very true. And let it be said, I, I, it's not Return that... Return of I, craft. I'm all, I'm very up for making things. I'm in the middle of knitting one of the most beautiful socks I've ever made. I made rice and dal for dinner before, you know, sitting down to do this. And, um, you know, I, I like making, I don't like the discourse that seems to devalue other kinds of contemplation. Yes. I am... I think that is a lovely place for us to end our official show on that there is, there is, um, 
importance that there's loveliness in making and there's loveliness in, in thought and process that goes along with it. Um, and we're going to go to post show for a couple of minutes, but I'm going to take us out tonight and just say, um, for more about, um, for more about Tumblr's tumbling and this podcast, visit us at tumblevision.tv, T-U-M-M-E-L-V-I-S-I-O-N.tv. We've got archived episodes with a bunch of amazing guests up there. The show is live every Thursday at 6 p.m. Pacific and 9 p.m. Eastern. And next week's guest will be Jeff Jarvis, the journalism professor, author of What Google Would Do, early blogger. So without further ado, thank you all again for episode number 53 with our awesome guest, Molly Steenson. Thank you. Bye, Molly. Yay, Molly. And Kevin down in San Jose and me, Deb Schultz. Up in San Francisco. Bye, guys. Thank you. Tumble Vision is produced by Andrew Hazlett of thenewmodern.net. To find out more about the people and ideas behind this podcast, visit tumblevision.tv.